to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. A little bit about myself. Uh, I've been married for 24 years to my bride, Holly. Um, we have nine children. Um, I was telling Tyler this morning, we, you know, we have basically two tiers in our house, and the upper tier is giving us a run for our money right now. Uh, a lot of moving parts, a lot of, a lot of stuff going on, and uh, you can be praying for us as we uh, minister and, and shepherd and serve those kiddos. But we, we love it. Uh, life is rich and crazy and loud um, at our place. Um, but yeah, I, I uh, really have thought a lot about this topic of worship. In part with, with what Sankey mentioned earlier, I um, really the first part of my vocational ministry was worship. Um, even during my call to church planting, um, I was asked to help start a worship arts program at my alma mater in St. Louis. And so even as I was pursuing the church planting thing as a resident at, at the, the church we were part of, um, I was helping build this other thing that had everything to do with worship. And one of the things that we had to figure out really quickly is what are we going to tell young people about worship as they get ready to move into, you know, vocational ministry, if that's what the Lord calls them to. And it's really interesting, Brother Brad, your name, right? Right? Uh, Brad really has already preached my sermon um, this morning as he did his introduction before, uh, before the first song. Because one of the things that had been growing in my own heart, one of the things that I was having a, a deeper conviction about was the reality that worship is more than just singing. And I actually had this thought as we were worshiping this morning, it's not that singing isn't worship. Uh, you know, worship is no less than that. But really, as we're singing songs in worship, what we're really singing songs about is uh, uh, the way in which you and I should be living all of life that way, right? When we, we say, bless the Lord, all my soul, that's a way for us to communicate something that should be true in all of life for us. We're just, happen, we're just singing it, right? And, but that's what gets us caught up because we're singing a song, we're singing a song in worship, sung worship, and we start to reduce worship to only singing or only other forms of, of expressions of worship. And up until church planning, that was my world. I thought a lot about what is worship, how do we decide what we're going to sing in order to help people worship. And I have come to the conclusion, the conviction, and, and this is the big idea this morning, and that is worship really is just another way to describe every aspect of what we should be doing in our lives. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. And here's how pastor and author John Piper connects that to worship. He says, All of life is the outshining, or you could say it the other way, the shining out 
of what you truly value, what you truly treasure, what you truly cherish. Therefore, all of life is worship. All of life is worship. So the question before us this morning is, is that true? What does the Bible have to say to us about that idea, if it's true? And what could look different for us after today if we saw that all of life is worship? Sojourn, you have been looking at the different rhythms uh, or postures of the Christian this summer in the Psalms, and Sankey has asked me to speak on the posture of worship this morning. So, if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 4. That should be pretty easy. That's the first book in the Bible if you're new to the Scriptures. And Genesis chapter 4 is the fourth chapter. And uh, we're going to begin right at the very beginning of Genesis 4 uh, in verse 1. Let me read that for us as we get started this morning. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions." And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell, and the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world, Brad, does this passage have to do with all of life worship? We could have went to the passage where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says, hey, look, uh, God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That had been a great sermon this morning. And what Jesus is talking about there is all of life worship. But I want you to hang with me on this story this morning because we are going to get there with this passage. And as we look at this passage, I really want to invite you to see three things this morning. And the first is this, all of life worship finds its end in God. All of life worship finds its end in God. Second, all of life worship is pure in heart towards God. 
And third, all of life worship is incompatible with unrepentance before God. When you look at the book of Genesis, you can really break it down into four big sections. Um, You have the creation account and the first families, the life of Abraham, the life of Jacob, and then the life of Joseph. And our passage today is found in the very first part of Genesis, and in particular, in the context of the first families of the Bible. In fact, the first family of the Bible. What is really fascinating to me about the book of Genesis is that as the, as the first book of the Bible, we are going back to the very beginning of everything, right? And as we do that, we are getting a, a glimpse and an understanding of why the world is the way that it is. Genesis truly is all about beginnings, and in order to make sense of the world, you have to start there with Genesis. Now, right before our passage today in Genesis 4 is Genesis 3, right? Genesis 3, you know, if you're familiar with the Bible, describes the fall of our first spiritual parents. Adam and Eve take the bait. They decide to be their own gods, and the Scriptures describe the the fall is what, what we call it, where death and, and strained relationships and painful labor and difficult work, uh, work come into play, but worst of all, separation from God. And even in the midst, though, of that fail of our first parents, God gives hope and promise when he says in Genesis 3.15 that though the enemy will bruise the heel of humanity, he will tempt us, he will accuse us, He will devour us at times. For those whom God has called into a spiritual family, he also says that God will bruise the head of Satan, which means he will ultimately defeat sin and death and the enemy. And as you might know, this is the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. So today we come to the next chapter after that. The next chapter in the story of humanity after the promise of spiritual rescue. So if you would look with me at Genesis 4, beginning in verse 1. After having been sent away from the garden, we are finding Adam and Eve have conceived a son. And they named their first son Cain. And here we have the beginnings of the literally the very first family in the Bible. Now I want you to notice what Eve says about the birth of her firstborn in verse 2. She says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, what Eve is saying here is that she is recognizing that the gift of a son is not something that she did, but it's something that God did, right? God helped her have a firstborn son. Now, I said that on the surface, this passage may not seem like it's about worship, But here we see in just the first verse of chapter 4, after the first announcement of the gospel in chapter 3, that that is exactly what is happening here as it relates to worship. When someone receives a blessing from God, there is typically one of two responses. The first response is to just sort of receive the blessing, enjoy the blessing, 
but not recognize the giver of the blessing. The second response is to receive the blessing, to enjoy the blessing, and then to turn back and acknowledge and and appreciate the giver of that blessing through what I'm going to argue this morning, worship. Right? The first response is really a, a a consumeristic way to live, or, or especially as a Christian, right, to receive a, a blessing and enjoy the blessing, but not return the, the, the praise and worship to the giver of that blessing. And I want to argue today and challenge you to think about how often in our lives do we receive the blessing of God in a variety of ways and enjoy the blessing of God in a variety of ways, but it ends there. See, this is um, happening here with Eve. Eve's name means life, and the mother of all living knew that this child was born by the power of God operating in her. And so, in response to what what, uh, God has done in Eve's life, Eve is in turn worshiping, saying, this gift of a child is a gift from God. She didn't receive the blessing and just move on. She directed her heart back toward the giver of the blessing. Friends, that is always the rhythm of all of life worship. I I would argue that if that's not the rhythm, it's not worship. We experience the goodness of God, and we respond to that goodness in worship to God. We count our blessings by recounting the kindness of God who is the source of our blessing. And that really brings me to the first thing that I want to invite you to see this morning. We said this earlier, but as we think about the posture of worship for the Christian, all of life worship finds its end in God. Or I'm trying to make the case this morning that all of life worship should find its end in God. See, Eve didn't just receive this blessing and and move on. She did the thing that you and I don't do often. One of the things that I am guilty of, one of the things that all of us are guilty of, is that we are the anti-Eves as Christians. We consume the blessings of God rather than praise the God of the blessing, right? Right? See, Eve is worshiping God here not because she's at a worship gathering, right? At a church service, singing worship songs. Again, worship is no less than that. But she is worshiping God here because she understands something about God that you and I often miss. She sees God at work in every aspect of her life, even the blessing of a little baby boy. And she doesn't miss this opportunity to worship the God who works in every aspect of her life. No part of her life is unaffected by God. So she seizes this opportunity to thank her provider, to thank her helper for this blessing. Can you count your blessings like that? Do you worship God for a great cup of coffee? a good meal, 
a special conversation with a, a friend or a, a, a child even, a sunset. God, friends, is involved in the mundane and the excitement of every aspect of your life. And He deserves worship for all of it. All of life, worship, finds its end in God. Now look with me, if you would, at verse 2 again. Adam and Eve bear another son, and they name this son Abel. And then we learn more about both boys in that same verse as well. Let me read that for us. It says that Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. And then beginning in verse 3, let me read that again for us. It says this, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, I want you to notice the word brought in this verse. Cain brought to the Lord an offering. Abel brought to the Lord the firstborn of his flock. That was an offering as well. So what we have here is, I believe, the first scene or the first occasion in the Bible of an offering being brought to God, right? Genesis is about beginnings. This is the beginning of this idea of bringing an offering to the Lord. And again, this passage or these verses that we just read doesn't on the surface seem to maybe have to do with the idea of worship, but guess what an offering is? Worship. Or we could say it this way, it is an act of worship. And so Cain and Abel bring their offerings to God as an act of worship, and what happens? Well, the answer to that question is found at the very end of verse 4 and into verse 5. So let's look there. Here's what it says again. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So, the Lord accepts Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's offering. Why? Well, folks have tried to make sense of this passage for as long as people have been looking at this. Um, the ancient historian Josephus thought that God was more pleased with Abel's offering because God is honored by things that grow themselves rather than things that are grown by man. Others have said that because Abel's sacrifice included blood, which reflects atonement, and Cain's did not, God rejected Cain's offering. But we have to say this, both of those ideas, even from our boy Josephus and others, aren't in the passage. Here's the reality. Both of these men were simply bringing the fruit of their labor to God in acts of worship. So this is very important for you to, to hear this morning. Both offerings in their form were perfectly acceptable. We just can't explain the rejection by saying that Cain didn't follow the rules for sacrifice because there were no rules, not at this point. Later on in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you're going to see a lot of rules 
especially in Leviticus. So if you appeal to the Mosaic law here, you would see then, even if you move forward, that both grain offerings and animal offerings were acceptable. So again, in their form, both offerings were appropriate. So what is happening here? Well, there is a clue, I believe, at the beginning, excuse me, at the end of verse 5. Here we have Cain's response to God's rejection. And it says that Cain was very angry and his face fell. And then look what happens. God pursues Cain with some investigative questions. It reminds me of what happened in chapter 3 of Genesis whenever God pursues Adam with questions and Eve with questions. These are questions meant to bring about repentance and, and confession. These are not questions that are like a hammer being driven down, but rather a, an invitation into coming clean. But his questions, and something in the questions, I think, from God, give us a clue as to why God rejected Cain's offerings. In fact, I like how it, it's written in, the, in verse 7 uh, in the NIV. Um, so this is what it says in the New International Version. God said, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. I was reading from another translation earlier, but this translation, I think we find a clue in the word right. Let me tell you what I mean. Did God accept Cain's offering? No. So apparently Cain did not do what was right, so God rejected his offering. But this begs the question of why? We, we said there were no differences in the kinds of offerings that Cain brought compared to Abel, so here is the difference, I believe. God is not rejecting the what of Cain's offering. He is rejecting the how of Cain's offering. In other words, God is rejecting Cain's offering of worship, not because he didn't follow the rules. God is rejecting Cain's offering of worship because his life and his heart did not match his act of worship. It's interesting, the New Testament actually helps us out with this Old Testament story. It's one of the really cool things that you see in the Bible, the unity of the Scriptures, the way that various passages connect to other passages to give us a, a clear sense of the full counsel of God. But all the way towards the end of the Bible in a book called 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, it tells us that Cain demonstrated an evil heart by his evil deeds while Abel demonstrated a devoted heart by his righteous deeds. The, the, the passage there in 1 John is talking about what's going on here in Genesis 4. And then in, in another place, in, in Hebrews 11.4, it says that Abel offered his sacrifice by faith and was commended as righteous because of it. Here's the second thing that I want to invite you to see this morning. All of, li all of life worship is pure in heart towards God. Again, we could say it this way, 
all of life worship should be pure in heart towards God, but often it's not. What we actually see here in Cain is the opposite of that idea, right? Cain's heart and life did not love God. They were disconnected from him. Cain did not have an authentic love for God, and so God did not accept Cain's worship. Really, a better way to say it is that God, listen, couldn't accept his worship. God doesn't, he can't accept empty external worship that is not really about him. So God is actually showing us the opposite of what authentic worship looks like here to show us what authentic worship should look like. Are you with me? So here's what happens, friends. If if our hearts are disconnected from God, we're just like the Pharisees that Jesus gets after in Matthew 15. Remember what he said to them? He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. See, it's possible to look like you are honoring God on the outside, but on the inside, you're far from him. And Jesus is saying in Matthew 15, and I think we see here in Genesis 4, that means your worship is likely in vain. And the saddest part of all of that is that it means our hearts and God's heart are as far away from one another as they could be. Again, God does not accept empty praise. He is a jealous God, right? His holiness and his perfection, his transcendence and our sinfulness cannot coexist. God demands, he deserves truthful, integrous worship that is genuine and authentic and from the heart. He's worthy of it and all of life. Now, you might be wondering, Brad, look, I I try to be as real as I can be about my sin in my life. I'm a broken sinner, okay? I'm not saying that God is desiring perfection in order for you to be able to come to him and worship. I think the word authentic is a really helpful word here. What God is desiring is an authentic connection to him and worship. And again, not just in a, in a worship gathering here, but in all of life. See, what, what Cain wasn't doing was worshiping God with all of who he was, his brokenness included. He was withholding his heart from God. And God would not accept that false worship. That's true for us too. When, When we withhold our heart from God in worship, God really is not able and he doesn't accept our worship. Whether we're worshiping God for a great cup of coffee or in a worship gathering like this. God is showing us here in Genesis 4 what it looks like to have a heart that is far from God in worship. 
In a way, he is pleading with us to connect with him, God, on a heart level, in spirit and truth, as we worship him in every aspect of our lives. All of life worship is pure in heart towards God. Now, look with me, if you would, at verse 10. Because of God's holiness, because of his perfection, it cannot live in the same space as unrepentant sin. In this story, God enacts his justice on Cain by cursing Cain. See, to simply forgive Cain here would not be just. It actually would not be fair, especially to the now deceased Abel. When God says that your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, he's actually using a metaphor, a word picture. We see this pop up in a couple other places in the scriptures, Luke 18, Revelation 6, where crimes against innocent victims cry out to God day and night. And God actually responds to this cry for justice in our story today by punishing Cain, and I want you to notice this, more severely than his parents. Adam and Eve themselves were not necessarily cursed, but they were sent into a cursed world. Cain himself here is cursed by God. And I think part of the principle here is that deeper sin always leads to deeper brokenness. Now look with me if you would at verses 13 and 14. Cain responds to God's punishment. And as you heard us read that earlier, I wonder if it sounded like repentance to you. It almost looks like repentance, but Cain's cry here is not repentance. First of all, he's not expressing any regret over what he has done. He's just saying the pain of the punishment is hard. That is not real repentance. Repentance is not complaining about how hard the consequence of sin is. Repentance always involves godly sorrow and sadness. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 calls it godly grief. But secondly, Cain is complaining that the punishment isn't fair. In other words, he's not really fully accepting the blame for what he has done. By the way, real repentance means we admit that we really did something wrong. And we can believe that we actually did it, right? How often do in repentance we say something like, I cannot believe I did that. Actually, real repentance is going, no, I actually can believe that I did that. That's how broken of a sinner I am. So we see that Cain is still refusing to worship God rightly here. He brings an acceptable offering to God, but with the wrong posture of heart, and God rejects his offering. And instead of coming clean about the posture of his heart, Cain takes matters into his own hands, and this is, by the way, the, the trajectory of a heart that is far from God. And this is, this is a tragic thing that happens here. Cain takes matters into his own hands and he kills his brother. And then he engages in false repentance. This is again the anti-Eve of our story. Cain's heart is so bent away from God 
that he can't see God's attempts to woo him back towards forgiveness. And again, we're seeing the inverse of what real worship looks like here. This brings me to the last thing that I want to invite you to see this morning. All of life worship is incompatible with unrepentance. All of life worship is incompatible with unrepentance. So let's just talk about what that is. What is unrepentance? And how is it opposed to worship? How does it get in the way of you and I living a life of of worship? Well, here's some ways that I think unrepentance plays itself out in our lives. And I'm going to speak in first person uh, because these are true of me. But I think it's also helpful for you to hear the word I because you can put yourself in the same spot pretty quickly. First, defending. This is what someone who is defending their sin is doing and why it's unrepentance. I find it difficult to receive feedback about weaknesses or sin. When confronted, my tendency is to explain things away, to talk about my successes or to justify my decision. And as a result... People are hesitant to approach me, and I rarely have conversations about difficult things in my life. That's one form of unrepentance. Another form of unrepentance is what I would call faking. I strive to keep up appearances and maintain a respectable image. My behavior to some degree is driven by what I think others think of me. I also do not like to think reflectively about my life. And as a result, not many people know the real me. I may not even know the real me. Second, or excuse me, third form of unrepentance is one I call hiding. I tend to conceal as much as I can about my life, especially the bad stuff. This is different from faking in that faking is about impressing. Hiding is more about shame. I don't think people will accept or love the real me. The next form of unrepentance, exaggerating. I tend to think and talk more highly of myself than I ought to. I make things good or bad out to be much bigger than they are, usually to get attention. And as a result, things often get more attention than they deserve and have a way of making me stressed and anxious in the end. Next form of unrepentance is is what I would call blaming. I am quick to blame others for sin or circumstances. I have a difficult time owning my contributions to sin or conflict. There is an element of pride that assumes it's not my fault or an element of fear or rejection if it is my fault. And then the last form of unrepentance would be downplaying. I tend to give little weight to sin or circumstances in my life as if they are normal or not that bad. As a result, things often don't get the attention they deserve. They have a way of mounting up to the point of being overwhelming. Where do you find yourself in that list? What would you say is the form of unrepentance that you struggle with the most? Is it defending? Is it faking? Is it hiding? Is it exaggerating? Is it blaming? Is it downplaying? By the way, 
Make sure that you're answering this question for yourself this morning. One of the things the enemy does whenever we start to move into a a place where we can be the anti-Cain, and that is to repent well, is that we start thinking of other people that need to hear what we just heard, not us. So where do you find yourself? Maybe you exaggerate. Maybe you're a blamer. Maybe you downplay your sin, but I, I think it should be clear, it's becoming clear, hopefully, that those forms of unrepentance are absolutely going to get in the way of your ability to live a life of worship towards God, right? Do you see how they're opposed to worship? Unrepentance always keeps us at arm's length with others, but more importantly, God. It keeps us at a distance from Him. So it follows that true and pure all of life worship cannot coexist with unrepentance. God's holiness and our sin can't be in the same room, so to speak. But here's the good news, friends. The gospel calls us to and empowers us for true repentance. It it, it shows us how and gives us the strength for closing the gap between our sin and God. And true repentance is motivated by truly, like true godly sorrow, not just selfish regret. It's concerned with the heart, not just with external actions. And ultimately, it's looking to Jesus for deliverance from the penalty and the power of sin. So instead of defending or faking or hiding or exaggerating or blaming or downplaying, True gospel repentance moves us to realize I did do that and to repent. Lord, forgive me. You are my only hope. All of life worship is incompatible with unrepentance. So what do you need to repent of this morning to cultivate a heart of worship in all of life? Let's end here uh, this morning. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this from Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and then skipping down to verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, listen to this, than the blood of Abel. It's almost as if the author of Hebrews has read Genesis 4. He references Abel, right? And here's what I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Jesus, the ultimate Abel, the ultimate man of faith, the only innocent man ever to live, came into our world, and we, like Cain, killed his brother, killed him, Jesus. But this was not a random accident. This one, Jesus, came into our world to be a substitute, to bear the curse that we, the Cains of this world, deserved. See, friends, like Cain, 
Jesus was a wanderer without a home. That was part of the curse for Cain, was to wander. He was rejected. And listen, unlike Cain, though, Jesus was killed. And unlike Cain, he was killed as an innocent person. But the writer of Hebrews says this, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because Jesus' blood cries out and secures for us what sits at the bottom of all of our worship, grace. See, the blood of Jesus cries grace, grace, mercy for all who would believe in him. The better word that the blood of Jesus speaks over those who would believe and rest in him means that what would have been cries of defeat in our life can now become, listen, cries of worship. It is the kindness of God that has led us to real repentance and into, now, praise. Why? Because you're forgiven. And it's in that forgiveness that you and I now have a brand new outlook on life. At least we should. We should have a new pursuit in all of life. A new understanding of what life is all about. Here's John Piper again. Listen to this. Worship is what you are created for. This is the final end of all existence, the worship of God. God created the universe so that it would display the worth of His glory, and He created us so that we would see this glory and reflect it by knowing and loving it with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Friends, because you have been forgiven, all of your life can be and should be about worship. Why, though? For the glory of God. So that we would continue to see His glory in everything that we engage with in our lives and then reflect that glory to others so that they can know and love Jesus as well with their heart and soul and mind and strength. Friends, all of life worship to the glory of God. That's what we were created for. Let's pray together. 